Louisville, you know, was born out of the sort of simple idea that we couldn't see the burden of asthma in our community. And Air Louisville becomes one of these important projects to make visible the invisible. And uh, now we can all see, you know, really where there's, and there's no other way to put it, where there's suffering in our community that really maybe could be prevented or avoided with the right kind of uh, interventions. That was Dr. Ted Smith, Chief of Civic Innovation for the Louisville, Kentucky Mayor's Office. Louisville is home to the Kentucky Derby, the largest fireworks display in the United States, and the oldest operating Mississippi-style Sternwheeler steamboat. Louisville is also among the most polluted metropolitan areas and has one of the highest asthma rates in the country. That last distinction may be about to change. Ted is leading an innovative project where citizens are using GPS-enabled asthma inhalers that allow data scientists to pinpoint the geographic location of the triggers of asthma flare-ups. They are generating a data set that can then be combined with other data on neighborhood-level air quality, population density, or vegetation to answer questions such as, do asthma attacks increase during rush hour? Are people using their inhalers more when they are walking around the busy downtown or in suburban neighborhoods? The analyses are being shared with agencies and departments, clinicians and the public, with the goal of providing insight into and building support for public policies that can lessen the environmental triggers of asthma and chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, or COPD, across the city. raising my kids in New York City. It's a great place to raise kids. Lots of museums, parks, concerts, and lots of traffic. And I worry sometimes that the pollution from all the cars is harmful to their future health. A friend of mine suggested that because we live near the river, our air is cleaner than the air in the parts of the city that are further from the water. There are also a surprisingly lot of trees, which should make the air cleaner, right? But my daughter has allergies, and New York City has a large number of male trees, the worst pollen offenders. So there are lots of theories about the quality of air my children are breathing, but very little information I can use to make simple decisions. I can't see the pollution in the air, so I have no way of avoiding the streets with the highest concentration of particulates. I don't have a city map of the trees that produce the most pollen. But what if? What if this information were visible to me and everyone who lives in New York City? What if I could choose between two equally distant parks according to the air quality? What if I could avoid walking with my daughter along a path of high pollen? Even better, what if city planners could view patterns of pollution over time and use it to optimally place parks and other places where people congregate outside? You're listening to Pioneering Ideas. I'm your host, Lori Melliker. This podcast is brought to you by the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation. On this podcast, we feature conversations that explore cutting-edge ideas with the potential to build a culture of health. In a culture of health, everyone in our diverse society can live healthier lives now and for generations to come. Our health is determined by much more than the medical care we receive. It's more dependent on who we are, how much money we make, and where we live, learn, work, and play. These wider forces and systems shape our daily life, and they create higher barriers to health for some in our society, and that's where we focus our efforts. Across the country, communities like Louisville are finding creative solutions to improve health. We want to engage with them, 
learn from them, and share what works. We're hopeful that our work in the city of Louisville will produce unprecedented data and insights about air quality and accelerate local partnerships between government, healthcare, transportation, business, and others to improve health and health equity citywide. My colleague Paul Torini has been working closely with the Air Louisville team. He recently sat down with Ted. Let's listen to their conversation. Thanks for joining us, Ted, and welcome. Thanks for having me. So let's talk about Air Louisville. At a high level, how does Air Louisville um, fit into a culture of health? Sure. Air Louisville, you know, was born out of the sort of simple idea that we couldn't see the burden of asthma in our community. And, you know, there's a lot to be said for, you know, having a difficult time valuing things that you can't see or touch. And so for us to begin to connect with the realities of the burden, disproportionate burden of asthma in our community, Air Louisville becomes one of these important projects to make visible the invisible. And uh, now we can all see, you know, really where there's, and there's no other way to put it, where there's suffering in our community that really maybe could be prevented or avoided with the right kind of uh, interventions. So yeah, we're making it visible so that we can value it. All right, so let's help folks understand how you're making it visible and how you can deal with it. At Robert Wood Johnson, we were interested in this project because for us it was what we saw as the first end-to-end test of taking real-time patient-generated data and using it to inform public policy decisions. So let's talk about that data, where it comes from, and then how you're using it to inform public policy decisions. Sure. So the data that we're working with in Air Louisville is generated through a very clever device that is attached to inhaled medications. And so people who have asthma and COPD need to take typically a regular maintenance medication and often have a rescue or emergency medication for when they're really uh, having an episode that's hard to control. And the technology uh, made by a company in Wisconsin called Propeller Health essentially makes it possible to take a snapshot of what time it is and where you are when that medication is delivered. And that information can be sent actually through the mobile phone up into the cloud and we can in near real time see where these episodes are occurring, where people are medicating. And so, you know, we've been collecting and aggregating those data on the city side so that we can maybe get a better picture of where there may be triggers or drivers for the population, right? Not for any one individual, but for hundreds or thousands of individuals. You know, are there aggregation points where there are regularly events of uncontrolled asthma? And uh, can we in the public sector do something about that? And that's really the data that we're looking at, brand new, couldn't have done it before. It actually requires that the patient is the source of the data and it's their symptoms being managed that is the signal and their willingness to sort of donate that data in aggregate to us to take a look at. So how does the device know where the patient is when they use the rescue medication? So the device is, uh, it tethers to your smartphone and so it uses Bluetooth technology and essentially the device is in communication with the cell phone which needs to be within I guess a hundred feet so that's usually not a problem and so we're taking a lot of the technology that's on board in the cell phone and every cell phone has all sorts of stuff inside of it these days 
and it's able to pair and then sync those signals so that we can get all that extra data about place and time and all that. So it's pulling GPS data? It's pulling GPS data off the phone, yep. So you've got all this location data for where people are when they're using their medication, and you're able to map that across the city? That's right. These are maps that are based on hundreds of people over many months who have had thousands and thousands of events where, you know, that medication has been delivered. And we're able to look at that activity, and it creates a heat map of where that activity is greatest and where it's least. Uh, do the people know that you're gathering their data? You know, they do. Any one individual, uh, at least this has been our experience, is most interested in this technology because it's helping them get better control of their disease. And so the highest value, I believe, for individuals who are participating in Air Louisville is actually just that very simple closed loop they're getting with the technology, where they're learning how well controlled their asthma is, where they're learning what potentially their individual triggers may be. And so the idea of the sort of the greater good, the big map, I mean, they know that they're part of a large project and that we're really trying to understand you know, how asthma functions in our community. I think most of them don't get up in the morning imagining they're contributing to a giant map. I really do think that they're getting some immediate benefits from just using the technology. So the data is being used for two purposes. It's helping individuals and I guess their clinicians, their providers, to help them manage their conditions better, but then it's also being used by you in the city. That's right, and I think you've caught on to something that's a little tricky about this, which is the technology itself actually helps people reduce the number of rescue events, and so we're in a bit of a race on the city side to get make sure we have enough data about these emergency attacks while the patients are actually getting better control and having fewer of them. And so um, it's a great problem to have. We want people to be better and to have uh, fewer of these uncontrolled events. But the reality is, you know, for us to get the most value out of that big map, we need to see enough events that there's some aggregation point that we can actually go study. That's Ted Smith talking about Air Louisville, an innovative approach to tackling asthma through data generated by patients using GPS-enabled inhalers. Keep listening to find out just how powerful that data can be when paired with data streams from other parts of the city. You're listening to Pioneering Ideas Podcast. Join the conversation at rwjf.org podcast and tell us, what untraditional approaches are you taking to help build healthy communities? Also, be sure to share your pioneering ideas to improve health and well-being at rwjf.org slash pioneering ideas. So as you're taking this data into the city and using it to inform your policy decisions, is this the only data that you're using or are there others that you are um, incorporating into your decision making? There are many, many other data sets that we're looking at. You know, if you were to take a look at the heat map, you know, your first instincts are to look for things like sources of pollution or age of housing stock or factors that sort of feel like common sense things that people imagine drive asthma. What we actually found is something that's a little more nuanced than that. What we found is 
there seems to be an overall relationship between things like the amount of vegetation in an area, particular times of year that bring their own little air pollution chemistry along with them, and not very, not these pinpoint, here's a coal burning power plant, there's where all the asthma attacks are. That very simplistic idea is one we actually had going in, that that's probably what we would see, and we'd be working on the public policy side, just having reinforcing data. But when we didn't see those kinds of simple relationships, we really started pulling in a lot of other kinds of data. So we've been working with our EPA, air pollution monitors, We've had some experiments with some low-cost air monitoring in our community where individual citizens walk around in areas where we don't have coverage from the EPA. We've been doing a lot of work with traffic data that we get in our partnership with Waze. And so it's really uh, it's a complicated, fun challenge for us to find those factors that really seem to have the most leverage in this challenge. So I'm hearing data from the inhalers, from asthma and COPD patients, traffic data, air quality data, and um, data on um, the vegetation or the tree canopy in the, in the city. Yep, that's my super short list. And then it includes things like weather. You know, weather's a factor for a lot of the ambient air issues. So if it's raining and, or it's windy, the air is not as much of a factor as when it's maybe stagnant. Those are times that are particularly dangerous and disproportionately affect some parts of our community. So as you take all this data and bring it into the city, the city isn't a monolith. They're actually different agencies that have responsibility for different parts of this. There's public health, there's transportation. I imagine that parks and recreation comes into play. Who's interested in this data and what are they doing with it? You know, in cities around the country that have made a commitment to sustainability, these are communities that are coming to grips with many different factors all at once. So they're, they're really thinking differently about transportation. They're thinking differently about energy use and production. They're thinking differently about density, you know, where people live. And so, you know, we've actually found a great partnership in the work that the sustainability community has been doing to layer in health into that conversation. So in many ways, this project is a voice of health in a conversation that you know, sort of feels, if you squint, more like an energy policy activity over in sustainability. Now they're having a real conversation about what it means to residents today, not in 50 years or 100 years, what it means today to make different decisions about land use, about transportation. So that's been a great surprise for us. A lot of great data nerds over there in that part of our government, and they're really bringing a lot of disparate data sets to bear. We feel like bringing this health data has really expanded the conversation and, and really encouraged people to ask more questions about health. So getting a lot of traction with one agency suggests you're not getting as much traction with others, and I'm wondering if you can talk about what some of the challenges are with some of those other agencies. Sure. So, you know, I guess you might have thought that when we, we started a health project, kind of a population health project, that you would have thought maybe our public health department would have been maybe the lead agency. I'm very much a benefit of the doubt person to look at the role of public health agencies across the country. You know, the idea of tackling kind of new kinds of data sets from new technologies, you know, is not the typical meat and potatoes work of public health agencies. And their work is important 
and they are often under-resourced for the mission that they have. So the idea that there's another way to tackle asthma and let's all work with these data sets, our experience with public health has been they're interested, they encourage the learning, but the tools that they use to do their job, evidence-based medicine, evidence-based practices, there's a little bit of a trick where we need to produce the evidence that this is a valid, actionable kind of data that a public health department would want to work with. So it's been a, a real, a bit of a surprise. So again, they're certainly good partners for us. It's just that they're not in a position to be the lead agency for a lot of this work. So we've talked about the patients contributing their data and their clinicians, and we've talked about folks in the city. Are there other partners involved in this project? Yeah, so this project is really, it's a combination of the parties that care the most about health and well-being. And so you can't do this kind of work without having healthcare professionals, providers on board. You know, we have um, one of our largest allergy and asthma specialty centers that's been with us since day one, really been a learning partner with us, you know, bringing their patients, you know, with obviously full clinical supervision into the project and then giving us feedback about how we should understand asthma and triggers of asthma and the development of symptoms and all that kind of stuff. So we, we certainly couldn't do it without the clinical community. And then the folks who pay the bills have been, I think, most interested in this project. And that's a really good thing, I think. So between employers and payers, you know, employers want their employees to be well. Employers who are headquartered here or who have substantial operations here, they immediately get it that it would be great to have healthy employees. And if there's something that could be done to keep them out of the hospital, they are highly motivated to sit at the table to be a partner to that kind of work. So I don't know if this is possible without those kinds of stakeholders because they really do understand why we're doing it and they're vested in the outcomes and great learning partners giving us feedback about, you know, sort of what's the best way to do this, what works for them, what are their processes and procedures for engaging in health fairs and all these things that we've had to learn about, you know, to sort of fit into the flow of how health is in the everyday conversations here in Louisville. So this project is still, I guess, relatively early days. Where do you see it going and what are some of the impacts you think it might have? So um, we've been at this work for three or four years here in Louisville on the asthma monitoring. The real trajectory of the work is it's been very, very surprising from my perspective. So you might have thought, well, we got into this because we're trying to sort of solve a difficult chronic disease problem in our community. You know, I think really where we see this work going is uh, we're having much more of an economic conversation about health. If it weren't for this project, I'm very sure we wouldn't be looking at, you know, let's say the green infrastructure issues. You know, our tree canopy here is low relative to cities you know, we consider our peers. And uh, cities we consider our peers don't have the same kinds of asthma problems that we have. And so you're starting to put these pieces together. We're having a conversation about what's it costing us to not have natural resources that could be helping mitigate these problems. And so if you said, well, Louisville, Kentucky needs to plant more trees to restore its urban canopy, there's really nobody that interested in writing a check for hundreds of millions of dollars to plant trees just for the sake of having a lot of trees. But 
We're really now in a position where we think from an econometric standpoint, we can start to see relationships between ultimate cost savings in the healthcare system from the offsetting preventative benefits of things like green infrastructure. Thinking that way is only possible because we started this project. And so I'm very sure we wouldn't be having any of the conversations we're having now about how we pay for and how we think about justifying the investment in these things as improving our health if we didn't see these kinds of data relationships. It's been a great journey, and I think it's really making us all sort of play our A game at thinking about your opening question about a culture of health. You know, what's the economy of health? And if the economy of health is about treating sick people all the time who are getting sicker, you know, we're not going to win economically as a community. We're not going to be viable in the long term. If we can shift our focus to be a healthier place, you know, valuing health, seeing what drives health, that gives us all a good feeling that we're on the right path. And so that's really where this is going for us. And there's a lot of new questions that we'll be asking and a lot of other uh, determinants of health in our community that this project has given us a kind of framework to use. Is there something unique in Louisville that made this possible, or is this something that other cities could take on? You know, we're really always eager to talk to other communities who really want to try a different kind of an approach that's a little bit about value immediately to residents, uh, potentially about engaging employers and physicians differently, and then having the public sector be just a great partner, you know, sort of socially sanctioning it. So I'm hopeful that, uh, you know, a few other cities will come online here in the next few years. Ted, thanks for joining us today. This is all really very exciting, and I've learned a lot both about how the project is adapting and about what you're learning. I really appreciate the time and the information that you shared with us today. Well, thank you, Paul. It's been great to have, uh, to have you uh, along the learning journey with us and, uh, and making a lot of this possible. So couldn't do it without you. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Louisville's Ted Smith, who has been making the invisible visible to help city leaders see how they can make changes so that Louisville is a healthier place to be. Eager to learn more about what's going on with this project? Visit rwjf.org podcast to read my interview with the mayor of Louisville, Greg Fisher. Thanks for joining us today. If this idea works, what else is possible? As our regular listeners know, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation is always looking for cutting edge ideas that can help us build a culture of health. We hope this episode and others in our series inspired your own pioneering idea. If you'd like to submit a proposal for consideration, share it at rwjf.org slash pioneering ideas, or connect with me on Twitter, at Lori Melliker. Right now, we are particularly interested in ideas that relate to the future of work. Be well. Mm-hmm.